I don't know how to describe it other than like like a demon type of sound. But it's silhouetted, hulking, every bit of five and a half feet wide, 13 to 14 foot tall, pitch black. The one thing that ran through my mind when I had this encounter was I don't have a big enough gun. Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, would you like to kick this off? Absolutely, we're welcoming back Chuck. And uh, we've had Chuck on before. He's uh, Chuck, you actually had your own podcast and hopefully you'll be starting that up again soon at some point. Um, but you're there in Oklahoma, and you had some some updates for us, some new some new uh, encounters. Before we get into that, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in this week. And if you like the show, let us know. We've been feeding the algorithms lately, so the best way to do that is you can habituate those algorithms with a like and subscribe if you haven't done so already. And if you want to support the program, if you think we've deserved your support, click the uh, link in, in the description for Patreon. And with that, Chuck, welcome aboard. It's good to have you back, buddy. Thank you, man. It's uh, it's good to be back. Uh, missed you guys. Yeah, likewise. Absolutely. So what's going on? Are you trying to tell us that there's Bigfoot in Oklahoma? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's, there's a few of them running around. I think, um, I, I tell you the, the latest experience that, that I know of, um, where I work and I've, I've talked about working in the oil field, uh, quite a bit. And, uh, we have this place that we call, uh, Mount Rushmore and it's, uh, uh, it's a big hill, uh, really high in elevation and, um, we have a pump up there on top of that hill that pumps fluid, uh, to our other locations. And one of the guys a couple nights ago, um, was driving up there and this is the middle of the night. We have to, we have to go through there three times a night, uh, when we're out working, uh, just to make sure there's no leaks or, or any of that kind of stuff going on. And he was driving up to Mount Rushmore, and he had a three-inch in diameter branch thrown in the front to the front of his pickup. And um, since then, I've done a little bit of looking around there myself, and I have found uh, a couple tree breaks, um, some twists. And I, I think what happened is we just turned this pump on not too long ago, uh, probably about a week and a half ago. And I think that what's happened is that we've, we've kind of ticked them off uh, in the sense that they don't like all the noise that we're, that we're making up there on top of that hill. And they don't like the fact that we're driving in there three times a night. And uh, this particular area is really a unique area because there's wild hogs everywhere out there. And we, get, we have to watch for wild hogs when we go out there because they are, um, there's some huge hogs out there. And plenty of deer, plenty of deer, <laughs> lots of deer in this area. And there's probably 
five, maybe six ponds around that area too. So they've, they've got plenty of food. Uh, they've got plenty of water to drink, uh, plenty of shade because there's lots of trees and stuff on top of this place. And I think we've just, the only thing they don't have right now is nice and quiet. And I think it's kind of, kind of ticked them off that they're a little upset with us, I think. Chuck, I think you and I have talked about this in the past, but in the location where this is happening, isn't there some um, historical precedence for these creatures being out there? Like they've, they've been there for a while. They've been there for a very long while. Right. Absolutely. Uh, there's a long history of people seeing, seeing them uh, in different locations all around this area. And uh, that's why when I, when I had the opportunity to take this job, that is one reason why I took the job because I, I knew the history and I knew the possibility of experiencing something or possibly seeing something um, was, was a key thing for me. Um, so that's, it, it does have a long history of, of events out there and sightings. So. Okay. So this is you know, really, you know, the reason I asked, I asked that question a lot with a lot of our, uh, our guests, our witnesses to kind of lay the groundwork that this is nothing new. They've been there no. for a long time and, you know, it makes sense. There's a lot of right. activity going on, and apparently there's some displeasure on their part about that. Right. Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, just the, the advent of all the noise that those pumps make and and uh, us driving up there to this location three times a night, every night, uh, sometimes a lot more than that, sometimes four or five, because we have to, we have to haul diesel up there to, uh, we have a, oh, uh, a generator up there that's massive uh, to help turn this pump, and uh, so we have to we have to fill it, the generator up with diesel every time we go up there, or not every time, but uh, during the night, you know, once or twice, and uh, so you know we're spending a lot of time up there, and I, I don't, you know, they're not used to that, I don't think, and I think that we've kind of aggravated the situation some and you know every time i go in there now i you know i i got my eyes and ears open and uh it's, it's chuck educate pretty... me a little bit on what exactly you're what you do up there for i'm assuming some oil company and what it is you know when you talk about the pumps and all that for people like myself and other audience members who would be interested mm -hmm. in knowing what is it that's going on out there? And give us a little description of the terrain. What you know? What what's the landscape like and that sort of thing? Well, this this particular area is called the it's it's actually called the Jip Hills, and um, all along this these Jip Hills, there's been sightings uh, and encounters, but mainly what we do is the way our operation runs we're we're actually it's not oil that we're actually moving what we're actually moving through these pipelines is salt water uh, because in the process here in oklahoma the way the process works 
you uh, when they when they frack a well or something, they send lots of salt water down there. And what the salt water does, it 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 pulls the oil up to the top. And so when you have a well site, uh, you get the oil comes up first, and they they got separate tanks for oil, and they've got separate tanks for for the salt water. And so there's a lot of this kind of operation going on, and uh, we're pushing. Uh, right now, we're pushing probably 30,000 barrels of salt water through this pipeline, and it's going to a saltwater disposal. And what happens is we pump that, that salt water back down in the ground at a disposal because Oklahoma at one time, hundreds and millions of years ago, however long it was, uh, Oklahoma was actually covered by saltwater. So uh, the ground table that here, it's, you know, it, if you get if you go a certain depth, uh, you actually run into salt water that's always been there. Um, so it's not really something that is environmentally an issue uh, because we, when we do something like that, we pump it uh, thousands of feet down in the ground, which is below the water table, and so we don't, you know. We watch everything, and and that's when we watch our pressures and we watch how much water we're that's coming in. Uh, we can monitor that, and that's kind of what we do. Hey, Chuck, um, I got a question. Yes, sir. How how long has that operation been there? Uh, this particular this pipeline where this activity took place last week is has been there. The pipeline itself has been there for quite a while, and uh, maybe a year year or two but at the time uh we didn't have a pump on there um it was just a pipeline the way this pipeline is 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 it goes into the hill itself and then at the very top of the hill is where it it the pipeline comes exposed out of the ground and uh then it goes back down into the hill itself and then goes on its way so the reason why we put a pump up there is because we we found out that uh, we just got some contracts for some more salt water to come into this location. So we decided that you know to to push more fluid through the pipeline, we were going to have to put a push a pump up there, and that's what we did. So the pump's only been there two weeks, maybe two and a half weeks. I was curious about what had changed that might have brought on this uh, behavior and Forrest could probably talk about that too as far as uh, something being introduced into an area where you know a species is living and how that might uh, affect them and how they might respond to it right and and that's I, I I really think that that's probably the issue is they you know the pump wasn't up there it wasn't making all kinds of racket and I think just the implement of the pump up there, it's uh, it's really kind of aggravated their routine. I would think so, yeah. Forrest, what do you think? So, well, I think you're probably correct in that. I mean, uh, primates, uh, as I always say, primates are primates are primates, and they're just like pizza. They don't like uh, they don't they don't take too kindly to change and. If you're interrupting their uh, nighttime, which I think they're nocturnal, um, you know, uh, movements and 
their hunting abilities in the early evening and early morning, um, they may not look too kindly on you <laughs> coming up and right. down there all the time. Yeah, and I, I think that's exactly what's taking place right now. But, um, you know, sooner or later, they'll adapt to what's going on. Uh, I noticed that when I was in the big thicket. I mean, in the big thicket, you had uh, you have right-of-ways in there, and they have to keep those right-of-ways mowed and, and kept up because if they – uh, around the big thicket, there's a lot of oil and gas and stuff that goes on there too. And so that's why they have these right-of-ways. They keep these right-of-ways open uh, so that if if there's an issue with the pipeline down there, uh, they can see it and, and see the issue and take care of it. But I, I noticed a lot of those areas, the big thicket, a lot of those areas were – areas areas especially where there was right of ways you you had it was like a travel corridor for them and i think that's you know sooner or later they'll adapt to what we've done here and uh it won't be an issue anymore they'll you know more than likely they'll move to a different area um and that whole area up there is just full of wild hogs and deer and so I mean, it, it's not like they're they're losing something other than their comfort uh, at this particular spot. And um, like I said, I think eventually they'll adapt to it, or they'll you know they'll find they'll move on to a different spot. And this this whole Jip Hills is I mean it's miles and miles long, and so there's and a lot of the a lot of the sightings and encounters have happened all through that area. So um, they got other places to go is, is how I should say that. Hey, Chuck. So I'm going to back up a little bit and in, in as much detail as you have, tell us a little bit more about this, this tree just got thrown at the guy. How big was the, the branch? He said it's like three inches in diameter right. the length of it. And just, you know, kind of, um, because that's very interesting and actually, you know, Will, this is something we've heard quite a bit here on the West Coast and and all the way, you know, all throughout the U.S. and, and North America. It's a repeating pattern with these things. Right. And, and this particular branch was, was about probably three inches in diameter. I actually uh, took, I think I may have sent you guys a picture of that branch. But it was actually broken off, and uh, it was a clean break. Uh, they just ripped it off a tree, and as he was driving through there, they threw it and um, threw it in front of him. And he actually called me when it happened and backed the truck up and showed the put the spotlight on it and showed it to me. And uh, but the other breaks that I found since since then uh, I'm seeing a twisted break where they'll they'll take a tree limb and they'll twist it and then break it off I'm seeing quite a few of those right now um, I haven't heard so anything. tell me where do you see those at are there like thickets or little um, like groves of trees or forests or and what are these hardwoods or these you know these uh, evergreens or deciduous 
they're, they're evergreens. They're cedar. Most of the stuff out here is red cedar, and um, a red cedar quite a quite a time back was actually uh, I don't know it it came in and it's it's grown like wildfire everywhere. So a lot of the areas where a lot of this stuff takes place are cedar trees, um, and, and I mean it's really neat to see them are to to see what happened to a limb because on those limbs uh if you if you look at the twist uh there is you know there's some there's some uh, people that say that if you look at a twist and I've looked at quite a few of them in the past but if you look at them at a real close you can tell whether this this primate is right-handed or left-handed depending on how the twist turns and, um, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but there's a lot of people that believe that. And I have seen twists where, uh, it sure looks like it was left-handed when it did the twist or right-handed when it did the twist. And, and what they'll do is they'll go, uh, why they do it. I don't know, but they'll, they'll take a, take a tree limb and twist it a certain way and break it. And, um, it doesn't necessarily break off the tree itself, but you can definitely see the break in in the tree on the tree limb. And you can look around that area, and uh, you can tell it's not it's not done by wind or anything like that because it'll be one branch. And if it was a a strong windstorm or something like that, you you would have multiple branches that are, are broken like that. And that's just not the case. These are single branches and, um, they're high enough off the ground that it's not, it's not a wild hog twisting it or getting into it or anything like that. It's, it, it you know, this is what, this is what we find a lot in this area. Yeah. And I, I the point that you made that it's one unique tree by itself, if there was a windstorm, if there's any kind of a weather break, you know, it would have it would have affected the surrounding trees. And this is what we see out here, you know, in the Northwest and will season California and up in Oregon, Washington, is you got one tree, healthy, mm-hmm. perfect tree. And typically what we see are trees about three and a half, maybe four inches in diameter, typically around three and a half inches. And about seven and a half to eight feet off the ground, mm-hmm. all by itself, perfect, right. healthy tree snapped over. Yep. And it's like, really? That's interesting. All the other trees, this was a very, very isolated weather event. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Isolated to within about a 24-inch diameter. Um, so it's it's interesting to hear you say that, though. It's just that one tree. Well, I'll, I'll tell you guys a little story. Um, uh, I We did an expedition down in a place called Lake of the Arbuckles. Uh, it's kind of southeastern Oklahoma and uh, really nice campgrounds, the whole nine, the whole nine yards. I mean, it, it's, it's a beautiful place to go. And um, we did an expedition there and, and set up our campsite. And I kind of walked away from everybody and kind of went back into the wood line. Well, as I'm walking through the wood line, I come across this area 
where there's probably six tree breaks, six or seven tree breaks, and they're all the limbs are all pointing in the same direction. Well, looking at that, you would think, well, that could be a storm burst or something, you know. And uh, well, I kind of looked at it really close, took some pictures of it. Uh, it was kind of unique in the fact that they were all pointed in the same direction, which if you look at it that that way, that was some kind of storm burst, but it wasn't, it wasn't a huge area. It was a small area. And when I got to looking at these breaks, the funny thing was every one of these breaks that was there, and like I said, there's five or six of them, were pointing exactly to where we were camped at, which was, that was crazy. And I know you got... No, 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 that, that's a road sign, food. Mm. Mm-hmm. 100 yards this way. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And the crazy thing about it is we, we uh, I went back to camp and got some other people out there, and uh, we were kind of looking things over, and we found what we call a sentinel tree. It's a, It was a tree. It was a big, huge tree, and it had another tree that was leaned up against it. And that tree, there, there was no ball at the bottom of, of that tree showing where it came from. This this tree was dragged in and shoved up against this other tree. And we act, there was a couple guys that even actually climbed up in this thing uh, by using that other tree as a, as a guide to get up there. And when they got up there, you, you could sit down up there on top and Guess where it was? It was straight across the campground that we were staying in. So they could sit up in that tree and and look the whole campsite over. And um, I mean, we find stuff like that, and and seeing that stuff and finding that stuff is amazing. It just gives you credence to what you're actually looking at. Right, and this is this is like uh, you know. A rooftop dining up there. Listen, go up here. There's your meals. Um, yep. <laughs> yeah, that's. It, it is interesting though when you see this sort of stuff, and you know, the, hard to explain it away any other way. It is very much so. And and down in southeastern Oklahoma, um, and I'm kind of getting off track here, but in southeast Oklahoma. Uh, we went to a place, and I, and I think I told you guys about this, that that there were two and three feet diameter trees that were just laid over the trail trying to keep people out of there. And, you know, there's no way that you could get a bulldozer down there or backhoe or anything like that. We had to use four-wheelers to get into this area, and that was the only way. You couldn't take a side-by-side. You couldn't take nothing in there other than a four-wheeler. And we come across those things, and they were every probably 20 or 30 feet, there would be another two foot or three foot tree that was laid over the trail. And, um, you know, you find that stuff and you, you, you look at it and you go, man, that's just, that's just out of the ordinary. It's got to be something. And the only thing that we can come up with, we know they're here, we've seen them. Um, we found their tracks, so we we know what it is. But a common person who wasn't in the note would see that 
that stuff and go, well, what the heck is this? You know? Right. Or, or just take a look at it and just not even give it a second thought. Right. Um, and it's funny how you describe that because that's an area that uh, Will's coming up here. Um, <clears throat> and I'm going to show him an area that's very close to where we looked at last time. And it's exactly that. There's several trees selectively, very selective wind knocked over and blocking off any further, you know, going further up this, uh, this old abandoned road. Right. Yeah. And, and you see a lot of that down in Southeastern Oklahoma, a lot of it. And, uh, of course, you know, it's that whole area down there is an amazing place to go. And, um, you just see all kinds of stuff down there that, that I don't really see up here further North northwest but um it's pretty neat to come across that stuff for sure well you know it's it's almost like these things operate in a in a um an unseen world that's hiding in plain sight if you know what you're looking for right exactly i i you know i can tell you uh i think i told you guys about the horse apple that was thrown um at at us there was three of us and uh we were going down a trail and and i i had found all kinds of structures in this area very active area um and we're walking down and i'm showing one of the guys that that was with us was a guy that i worked with and he he's not a believer he does he he thinks it's all a big joke and uh uh the amazing part is I would show him, I show him certain structures and he would look at me and go, man, that's flood damage. And I'd look at him and I'd say, man, there hadn't been a flood here in over a hundred years. How can you say that's flood damage? That's not flood damage. And, uh, as we're walking down the trail, this horse apple are a, you know, it's got other names, but we call them horse apples around here. It's Osage orange <laughs> tree is what it is. Yeah. What is it? Osage orange. Os- Osage orange is is the technical name for it. All right. So so both of you have me uh, baffled. I've got a new term here. So this is actually some kind of a fruit. It's a it's an orange or it's an apple. No, no. It's no, it's, it's, it's not a seed a- pod. Um. The horse I'm sorry, apple, say, it's a seed pod, uh, and it's, it's okay. about as big around as as a softball, and it's lime green in color. You can't miss them. And um, the texture of this horse apple, I don't know, Forrest, you may, you may agree with me. It looks like a brain is what it looks like. It's got yeah, the... It's, it's really weird. It's dimpled all over. Yeah, and um, you, I grew up with those when I was a kid, and my grand, my grandparents would tell me, "Well, don't, don't ever touch those. Don't, don't taste them or nothing because they're they're poisonous." And so I grew up with that mindset that these things were poisonous. Well, we're walking down this trail, and here comes this horse apple flying over our heads, and it it hits a tree in front of me and the, and it rolls to my feet 
and I, I reach down and I pick it up and I turn it over and there's a great big, huge bite mark taken out of it. And the crazy thing is, is I've seen, seen this in other areas too, where there's bite marks actually, actually taken out of these. And my, my growing up, my grandparents would take them and they would put them in their closets. They would put them in rooms of homes because they were an insect repellent. Insects don't like them. And so thinking about what I grew up with, what I, what I knew from my grandparents telling me, um, I, the, the first thing I thought of when I saw these bite marks taken out of them is maybe they're, they're biting a chunk out of it and then wiping that, wiping that horse apple juice on their skin or on their hair or whatever, just to keep the insects away from them. It's like a, it's like a natural insect, insect repellent. I don't know if I'm onto something, but that, that was one of the first things that crossed my mind when I saw that. No, that's interesting. I, I did wonder two things when you said it had a bite mark. So this thing's about the size of a softball. How big is the bite mark? Is it like, a third or quarter i mean it's obviously not a person that's biting into right. this it's it's half the size of the softball the bite okay. mark. and i actually so either these creatures bit into it and discovered it's uh you know toxic or whatever and just threw it or what you said you know maybe they're using it as an insect repellent and maybe they're throwing it at you because they didn't want you there well i think that was <laughs> What was funny is when I picked it up and turned it over and saw the bite mark, I turned to the guy that was with us that's not a believer, and he looked at me, and he goes, well, I can't explain that. <laughs> and I told him, I said, I told you. I told you, man. And uh, he, I still give him a, a lot of, of heat because of, because of that. But uh, I, I, I don't know if that's what they're doing, uh, but I do know that – you know, where this happened was in Northwest Oklahoma, where there's, there's a ton of activity there. Uh, it's a very, very hot spot area. Um, the structures that we have found there are just unbelievable. And we, a lot of times when we, when we look at these structures, we look for ax marks, we look for saw marks, we look for twine, we look for wire. Uh, to make sure that what we're looking at is something that is not man-made. And um, in where this took place, like I said, it was in northwest Oklahoma. I have found the same thing uh, down on the Red River at a place called Brown Springs. And uh, it's where the Red River crosses uh, and divides Oklahoma and Texas. And we have found horse apples down there with bite marks taken out of them. So it's not just, uh, uh, it's not just one location. You're talking about a probably four hour drive difference. Or, well, it's actually longer than that. It's probably about a six hour difference between where the horse apple that we had thrown at us is to the ones that we found on the red river. So there's a lot of stuff that, that you see um, and you recognize certain things. And that was one thing I recognized was that they're, they're taking bite marks out of these, uh, these horse apples for some reason. 
And um, the only thing that I could think of was that they're using it as uh, an insect repellent, putting it on their fur or whatever. And uh, I, that's that's the only conclusion I could actually come up with. Well, can I interject something here? Yeah. Um, there are no monkeys that do uh, just that. Um, you can, uh, capucine monkeys uh, will take and uh, they use millipedes that they find and they rub those millipedes all over their body and it, 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 it actually secretes a smelly substance, but it works for them because it keeps the mosquitoes away. Uh, they have also found that some monkeys will take onions and rub onions on their body because the onions act the same way. So uh, that that is a, a very logical uh, conclusion because I know exactly what he's talking about, the Osage Orange, because I heard the same thing that, they're, uh, that uh, old-timers used them for uh, insect repellent. Uh, we, don't, we don't have Osage Oranges down here in my area, but I have seen them up in... Uh, North Texas, uh, they're quite prevalent all up along the Red River and in that uh, north, uh, western and uh, northeastern area up there in Texas. And I think Chuck even, didn't you send me a picture of that, uh, that once upon a time? Because it had a pretty good chunk out of it. But yes, ma'am. It. Yes, ma'am, I sure did. And, and I'll tell you something else. <coughs> I'm sorry. I'll tell you something else. Uh, a lot. I, I've had a lot of reports from people, and I actually did a uh, an investigation on this one property. And this lady grew. Um, um, oh, my mind just went blank. Um, garlic, different different varieties of garlic, and the one thing that would be taken out of her garden every year was the garlic. She never got one clove of garlic uh, out that she had planted. They would they would come in and take the garlic off of there too. So garlic, I, I think that's another thing that they key in on is is garlic. And I don't know if they if that's something that they they eat or if that's you know that's a good repellent too. Um, so I, you know, I think it's it, it's kind of a a weird notion that they would do stuff like that, but I, yeah, I think that's p very possible that that does happen. Hey, Forrest. So, I, I now I'm kind of intrigued with these monkeys that use that have somehow figured out that that well was it a fruit or whatever that that would that would repel the mosquitoes. And I know you probably weren't there. Uh, the capucines actually will take, a, there's a specific type of millipede, which is like a centipede, you know, only, only they're bigger. Uh, and they will rub uh, this thing, uh, rub this millipede on their bodies, and the millipede will secrete uh, a substance, and it will uh, actually <clears throat> uh, prevent mosquitoes. So I missed that part. It was millipedes. And yeah, I got to tell you, I have a whole new respect for these things. <laughs> millipedes? Really? Millipedes, yeah. yeah. I, that's not something I'd want to rub my body with either. But I, well, I don't want to touch them. Yeah, I just I was looking up something here. And uh, it says that monkeys 
that monkeys rub many plants such as garlic, onion, and fennel on their fur. And that's coming from a Dr. Marina Kenyon. And uh, she's worked with capucines for uh, lots of years. There you go. Yeah. Yep. There you go. Well, that's interesting because so you have primates that have basic medicinal, I suppose you could call it that, uh, understanding of their environment. And they, you know, they utilize it. I don't want to say exploit it, but they utilize it for their benefit. And I'm just wondering, I'm curious if they have any other, um, you know, like actual medicinal plants or anything that they would, you know, eat or chew or, you know, for whatever ailments they might have. Well, you know, I'm sure that there probably is. Uh, nothing is coming to mind right now. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a, animals have a marvelous ability to uh, to know what to eat. And I don't know, um, I, I don't know whether you call it a sixth sense or just this innate, abil- innate ability to, to decide what's good and what isn't. Uh, for them. But, you know, uh, let's face it, at some point in time, Homo sapiens had to find out these things, too. And I think a lot of it is just by strictly experimentation, you know, and they they eat something and, uh, well, if it doesn't kill them, then uh, maybe, uh, you know, it's good for them to eat. But, uh, uh, you know, if you try something and, oh, my goodness, well, it works good for this. So then they go back to it to, uh, you know, rid themselves of, uh, you know, I know that there's certain things that in the wild that horses will eat to rid themselves of parasite uh, infestations. So, um, you know, they just have an ability to be able to uh, figure things out. Well, and and there's some in nature, you know, there's symbiotic relationships between certain animals, you know, birds that will pick the ticks and fleas off of horses and yeah, yeah. So, I, I it's still, I just, I'm racking my brain. How did you ever think to grab one of these millipedes and rub your body with it? Well, yeah. who would think? You know, of course, uh, garlic and onions kind of a smelly thing too. You know, uh, fennel not so much. I actually like the smell of fennel, but uh, you know, who would think to rub it all over their body? But I guess they thought, well, it's stinky, so. Maybe it'll, you know, the bugs will find it sticky, too. So, um, it, hey, it works. So I guess somebody came up with a brilliant idea that, you know, who was the first chimpanzee that decided to stick a stick down the, the termite mound, you know? And it's, right. it's like uh, the, the, the macaque, uh, Japanese macaques. I don't know. Here's a prime example. Uh, there's a, there was a female Japanese macaque that a researcher that was actually watching this group. and the first one that he ever saw do it, he was giving, uh, providing them with uh, sweet potatoes. They really like sweet potatoes. And she decided, for some reason, to go wash the sweet potato in the salt water of the ocean. And these tidal pools there that they came up to around, you know, where their, their location was. And she would wash the, the sweet potatoes in the, the tidal pools. Well, then it made them salty. And you know, lo and behold, they like the taste that way. They like the sweet potato with a little salt on it. So before they knew it, it was it, these other uh, macaques were watching her do that. So they went and did it. 
And before long, you know, you got a whole troop of monkeys that are washing their uh, sweet potatoes in uh, salt water because they like the taste. So oh, really, so they really do learn from each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so they do. They they observe behavior of each other and they learn from from the activities and behavior of each other. And interesting. Well, I mean, let's face it. I mean, humans do the same thing, you know. Right. Some some more so than others. Yes, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Chuck, what other have there been some other um, activities or encounters, uh, recent things going on there um, with uh, with the creatures? Uh, I haven't heard any any reports here lately other than what happened like a week ago um but trying to think uh i can't think of anything else right off the top of my head i know there's there's a couple areas um one that's just and i've uh, i think i told you about this this place a place called romano state park and uh i know there's been uh quite a few sightings in that area and uh, I, I don't know of any recent ones. Um, in fact, the last report I got from there was about two years ago, and there was uh, a bunch of uh, Native American kids that, that go to Romano's every year, and they stay in the cabins there. And uh, there, was an, <clears throat> there was an eight-year-old boy that was sleeping. Um, he decided he wanted to sleep outside in a sleeping bag outside of the cabin. And that's what he did. And um, he uh, he woke up in the middle of the night and looked up, and there was a there was a Bigfoot standing over the top of him, looking at him. And uh, of course, the kid panicked big time. And uh, the counselors came out and grabbed the kid. Um, I actually ha- knew somebody that was one of the one of the counselors there at the time and we got a hold of him. Uh, we wanted, we wanted to be able to talk to the kid and, um, tell him, you know, what we knew about these things and, you know, it's okay. He's okay. And all that, but we weren't even allowed to even do that. And they kept the, they kept the kid, uh, in the counselor's quarters and told the kid he just had a bad dream. And, uh, Oh, I, I bet that is, gave him a bad attitude because he knew he didn't have a bad dream. Right. And, and you know, unfortunately, I, I think that kind of stuff goes on quite a bit. And, uh, I, you know, people need to, to realize that these things exist and that they're out there. And, they, you know, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that they, they could be dangerous. Although, you know, lucky for me. Uh, I've never had an encounter where I thought I was in any kind of danger, but I probably was. Um, But, you know, I I just think it's kind of disgraceful that you would tell a kid you just you just saw something. You you didn't see anything. You you were just dreaming and you had a bad dream. And, um, uh, you know, the kid was pretty shaken up about it. So. Yeah. How old was, do you, any idea how old the kid was when this happened? He was eight years old. Okay. Well, 
And how many years ago did this happen? Uh, I think it was about two years ago. Oh, okay. If I remember right. correctly. And, that, and you know, I, you, you have multiple sightings in this area. Um, there was, uh, two guys driving down the, down the road. In fact, the road that I go on to get me to work and, uh, they were driving down the highway coming back toward town and, um, they saw one in broad daylight. It was about five o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, this thing come busting out of the wood line, jumped the highway and, uh, went behind a barn and, and then was running across the field and, uh, behind the field was a big tree line and that's where he was. That's where he was going, uh, was going to the tree line. And, um, anyway, they, they saw this thing and, uh, one of them was a uh, uh, oil field pumper, and uh, he uh, they, they they were driving down the highway, and and they turned. There was a side road there, and they turned turned down the side road to follow it. And uh, this thing this thing was moving so fast. Uh, they estimated that this thing was moving probably 55, 60 miles an hour because that, that's that's how fast they were driving just to keep up with it. And it busted into the, the opposite tree line and disappeared. They didn't see it after that. And we actually went out that night and, and took some flares out with us and, and kind of looked at looked in that area looking for it. And uh, it, was long, it was long gone. We never did see anything. But... Uh, you know, we have stuff like that happen occasionally. I mean, it doesn't happen all, all the time. Um, but, you know, they're they're definitely here, and there's definitely a, a lot of sightings. And a lot of those sightings don't get reported. And that's, that's the sad part, because we have no uh, – we don't have anybody that's really checking this stuff out like we need to. Yeah, that's – you just took the words out of my mouth. There really is no central – repository of data where you can um you know there, there's no call center there's there's no place to call and, and report this other than you know 911 and yeah you know, i'm not sure where that's going to go <laughs> yeah that's so, not going to lead you anywhere around here yeah um and now doesn't oklahoma right right well now now oklahoma just implemented some new legislation didn't they statewide regarding yeah. these things um, was it Oklahoma that has a they they put a season hunting season on these? There was, uh, and it actually one of the guys that was in charge of all that that did all that was uh, one of the Humphrey brothers, which were part of the um, siege of Honeby that took place, and I'm sure you guys have heard that story. Um, but um, he he was actually I think one of the brothers. And uh, he's the one that he finally decided to be a part of the government. And he's the one that put up, they put up a 200 or $2 million bounty. And they wanted, they wanted to have a hunting season for these things. And of course the state legislature luckily disagreed with what, what they were saying because they, they were thinking, man, we're going to have guys out here in the woods that are going to be shooting each other if we do something like this. So uh, they decided 
not to do that, um, but they they wanted one that, to to get captured, and it was uh, they were going to give they put up a two million dollar bounty for one being captured, and then uh, it wasn't a couple months later it went up to three million. Uh, of course, I, I think everybody kind of looked at that as being a really big joke because not everybody in the state of Oklahoma believes in these things. So um, I think he got a he got a lot of stuff back in his face over that whole thing, and uh, I think they've they've pretty much kind of gotten away from that idea, as far as I know. Um, well, it made national news, and I thought it was interesting. I I personally wasn't sure it was going to go anywhere, um, and and actually, I think they came to the same conclusion that the uh, will was at the county council. Skamania County uh, came to the same very very quickly, <laughs> the same wise decision. Yeah, exactly. This mm-hmm. is not a good thing. No, it wouldn't have been. And like I said, those guys for for a bounty like that, there there were there would be guys in all over the woods, and I'm sure somebody would have got shot or somebody would have got killed if they would have said, "Okay, we're going to do this." So I, I I was pretty upset about it myself, and um, I know every news media was was out uh, talking about it and everything else, and I actually sent a couple letters to the different media here in town saying, you know, this is a big mistake. You guys don't know what you're dealing with. And, um, I never got any responses from anybody, but, uh, I did, I did write them letters saying, you guys are making a big, big mistake. Don't do this. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's got a fraught with all sorts of problems. I, I tell you what, it it would have been, you know, the scene on Jaws where they're trying to kill the shark and they've got all those boats out there in the water and some of them got dynamite, some of them got guns. That, w- <laughs> that would have been the same thing. I mean, that's what yeah, I picture. We need a bigger boat, only we need right. a bigger gun. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and it, it you know, if, if you, it sounds like the ones out there, you know, it sounds like maybe they're not quite as aggressive as the ones on the West Coast. And that that could change everything. So who knows? Anyway, it sounds like wiser, yeah, wiser heads prevailed. Well, Chuck, I really appreciate you coming on with us today. And uh, now, are you are you in the field right now? Are you working today or? No, I'm off. I'm on my. Okay. I work seven days on, seven days off, and I'm actually on my seven days off. So. All right. Well, listen. I really appreciate it. I I am sure we're going to be having you on again in the future. And it sounds like there's plenty of stuff going on out there. Um, so I don't know. That's it's uh, it's a very interesting world, very different than the Pacific Northwest and the West Coast here. But uh, I, I tell you what, and I, I and I know I've said this to you and Will both. I'd sure like to get you guys down here to Oklahoma and. I could take you to some areas that would just probably blow your mind and you might even get a sighting. Well, you got a deal, buddy. Yeah. We're, we're going to do that here before too long. So can I ask one thing before we go? No, you can ask two things. Oh, okay. Good. Great. 
Uh, you know me, I, don't, I wouldn't run out of things to say. But anyway, um, I, what I'm kind of curious about, and I don't know why this thought just came to me, but uh, uh, every once in a while I have an epiphany. What is the difference, Chuck, tell me, in the, and Will, you need to get in on this, um, in, in the uh, physical difference of the Bigfoot out there in Oklahoma versus the ones in the West Coast? Well, the ones the ones here in in the Cascades and and the Siskiyous and all that are built for mountainous terrain, so they're adapted to that. And I think Chuck, what you've got there's probably a little bit different variation. Am I correct? Um, surprisingly enough, uh, I I don't know if it's a different variation or not, but they're they're big. Uh, they are big in Oklahoma. Um, I. Uh, I, I've found three different tracks uh, that were 23 inches and at different that's, locations. That's a big one. It's, it's huge. <laughs> and uh, in fact, the, the lady that I was talking about that raised the garlic, uh, we found two tracks in her backyard that were 23 inches. And, uh, uh, and then in the northwestern part of the state, we found another 23-inch track there. And the amazing thing about that track is uh, the babies were walking around with this thing. Um, I would have I would have casted that track, but it it was uh, there were so many baby tracks stepping in and out of that track that it actually messed a messed a really good cast up. That's, and I that's, there was no that's a twelve no and a half to, footer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, it's big. Um, we think the one that, that had the little tracks in it, we think we, we saw him a couple of times. And I say him, I think, I think that's the alpha of the group and have thought that for quite a few years. Um, but there's a, there's a trail that we go down. And on this trail, there's a, a cedar tree that's about 10 feet tall. And, um, there's been two instances that we were walking down that trail and saw a black silhouette standing behind the tree and you could see his shoulders and you could see his head. And, uh, uh, I, I really think that's what we saw. I think we, we actually saw the alpha and he, uh, I think he screws with us every time we go in there. Um, cause the, he'll, he'll put, he'll, take it we'll walk down this trail and we'll we'll come back out of this trail and there there will be a tree branch lane in the middle of the trail and um one time there was a guy we actually were walking back to our vehicles and we got to our vehicles and there was another well close to our vehicles we were in the creek bottom and uh, we see this pickup coming up the road coming up to where we were parked and uh he turned around and, and went back out the same way he came in. And, uh, we got up to where our vehicles were. And I told one of the guys that was with me, I said, I'm going to walk down this road just a ways. And I walked down the road where this pickup had went. And there was a, there was a tree branch laying in the middle of the road. And here's the funny thing about it. That tree limb the tire marks from the guy's pickup that had just pulled in there and went back out, the tire marks were, were underneath the limb. 
So the limb wasn't there when he went through it. It happened after he left. So in a matter of minutes, that tree limb landed in the middle of the road in front of us. You know, it's funny you mention that, Chuck, because this is what we've discovered and we're seeing more and more is that they're there. They're right there. They're a lot closer than you think they are. And, you know, you don't notice it. You don't see it. And, you know, we just see a lot of, personally, we see this sort of activity going on where there, it's like, oh, my gosh, it was there and we had no idea. Right. Well, and, and I agree with that. I mean, there's there's been times when I, I could have swore that they were five to six feet from me and I couldn't see them. And of course, these areas are, are full of brush and, and full of plum thickets. And, uh, we, you know, we have wild sand plums here. And um, I, that's a source of food that they use, too, I think. I mean, we have we have actually found tracks around um, these plum thickets, these wild plums. And, uh, of course, people go out there uh, and pick those plums every year and make one of the best jams and jellies you'll ever eat. Uh but I, I think they're, you know, they're using that as a food source, too. Uh, but the one thing that I, I think that could be different between what we have here in Oklahoma and what you guys have up there is uh, I, I don't think they're as aggressive here as they are there. And you hardly ever, you hardly ever hear them at night unless you're, uh, unless you're in southeastern Oklahoma. And, uh, of course, that area is just a – that's a completely different story. But uh, they, they pretty much are, are quiet in this, in this area. And I think they've been here for so long that they, they know that, man, if they were to yell out a scream here, it would, it would give them away in, in no time. Sure, and, sure, uh, absolutely. Well, listen, so, Chuck, I think we just <clears throat> ran up against our hour – I got to thank you, man. I really appreciate this. And, Anytime. Um, it's always a pleasure having absolutely. you, Absolutely. Forrest? Well, I appreciate yes. it, Will. And, and it's a pleasure to be on with you guys. Uh, you guys have uh, become one of my favorites. So I, I appreciate you guys getting me on. You got to come back. Likewise. Yes, sir. You know I will. Anytime you guys want me to, I'll, I'll come on. And if, if I have some stuff that, if I hear of anything, I, I will definitely let you guys know. Awesome. All right, everyone. It's Forrest, everybody, thanks for the chat, and uh, that'll wrap it for this episode. In Bigfoot history, Northern California, Bluff Creek Road, August 27, 1958. Jerry Crew gave this as the first date on which Bigfoot prints showed up on the new road under construction about 20 miles north of the Klamath River in the valley of Bluff Creek in 1958. There is no record of when or how often the tracks were seen, but the men on the job had the impression that whatever was making them was coming by in a regular route from northwest to southwest about one night a week. Sometimes, but not always, it would walk close by the road building machinery. Bluff Creek flows south out of Del Norte County into the Klamath about four miles above its junction with the Trinity. It is in a country of rounded, heavily timbered ridges with a few mountains reaching 5,000 feet. 
Times reporter has a look at tracks, says they're real, by Betty Allen, Humboldt Times correspondent. September 1958, Willow Creek, California. This is my story about Bigfoot. Idle words about wanting to see the huge tracks which have been appearing on the access road construction job at Bluff Creek caught up with me Friday morning at 7 o'clock. Philip Ammon, a neighbor knocked at my door, reminding me of the journey ahead. Checking with the Jess Bemis family, we found that there were new tracks to see. In the light traffic of early morning, we were soon rolling into Hoopa Valley, with its light current of blue smoke hanging low. On the way to Wetchpeck, five cows lay in peaceful contentment on a small turnout beside the road. A loaded logging truck passed within inches of their noses. On the one side of the road drops in a sheer descent for hundreds of feet into the Trinity River. On the other side, a rock cliff towered high above us. On down the road, a mother pig and three half-grown piglets brought us to a full stop. On over the Wetchpeck Bridge and up along the Klamath River, we were soon climbing the easy grade out of the canyon on the Bluff Creek Road through a wide road and well-watered, we traveled slowly for this was totally new country to us. A driver of the water truck directed us to take the lower road around Onion Mountain to the construction site. Tremendous Cliff The country is standing on end in the steep ridges that rise higher and higher. Here and there were rough rock and tremendous cliffs, but it is all slide country. No sandstone or cave formations. Bluff Creek is a good-sized stream and looks like it would be fine for fishing. The rangers at Orleans say, for some reason, it is not. We talked briefly to Charles Doney, who was operating a tractor, and he offered us the use of his pickup truck. We never could have gone the remaining six miles otherwise. Here was a man's busy world. Heavy dirt movers working, but allowing us through. Jackhammer men had to pull their airlines out of our way. Extremely rough in some places, the road was unexpectedly smooth in others. What did we expect to see? Maybe one track, and we could say it was all a hoax. Or maybe an unexpected inner sight might give us the answer. Jerry Crew directed us to the location of the tracks. I'll show you those tracks, Crew said. I could tell that some of the construction men were quite skeptical. I am told that some of them wouldn't even go and take a look. The first actual line of tracks definitely jolted me. On the hard ground where Philip Ammon's number 12s made a very light imprint, the track of Bigfoot sunk a half to three quarters of an inch in depth. Twenty clear, deep footprints marched along the side of the traveled portion of the road. Eighteen more were seen at intervals where the tractors had not run over them. We followed them down the road for some distance and found them in both hard and soft earth. Gravel rolled out of the cut bank to the side of the road, and I quickly looked that way. I was nervous in realizing that I was in the middle of the forest growth. I looked back to see how far the men and the equipment were. The thought passed through my mind. Just what on earth is a peaceful old rocking chair grandmother doing here anyway?
Doubts, hoax angle. We measured and studied the tracks. Could they be a hoax? Feet on the end of sticks? Rubber feet? Watching the activity of the men and how hard they were rushing their work to finish this portions of the road before winter, I could hardly see any of them putting in time at night, making three quarters of a mile of tracks of any kind. Bigfoot's tracks are in perfect proportion to what one would expect in their stride of sometimes 60 inches, 52 inches, or the one short step over a small mound of dirt, which was 40 inches. Even the depth to which the track had been pressed into the ground was in keeping with their size. What brings Bigfoot into the area? My guess is that the gasoline lantern light at the cook's tent attracts the wanderer's interest. There are workers living in both small tents and trailers close by the road. Now, is this a phony? A human hoax? If it is a prank, it is so natural. Anyone with stilts with feet would have to have both foot impressions, but it isn't that easy to maneuver in the soft earth. If they are wearing novelty story feet, how do they weight them to get the right depth effect? And when a man works hard labor physical all day, does he feel like prowling about at night, missing his sleep to make funny footprints? Of Bigfoot, one of the bosses said, We have an agreement, the thing and I, but he doesn't know about it. If he leaves me alone, I'll leave him alone. We returned home, definitely no wiser, only knowing we had seen 38 perfect tracks at least 16 inches long and 7 inches wide. We saw them. We measured them. We are still puzzled. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.